from uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hey, Murder Fam, and welcome back to Serial Killing, a podcast. My name is Alyssa Carroll, and this is Serial Saturday, where every Saturday we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous, vile, and disturbing behaviors. This week's podcast will be on David and Catherine Burney. So let's get started with David. David Burney was born on February 15, 1951 in the area of Perth, Western Australia. So let's get into some history for that time. The first direct dial coast-to-coast telephone call was made during November in the United States. The call went from New Jersey to California and it took about 18 seconds for the call to go through. We also see the successful synthesizing of specific hormones in the effort to perfect oral contraceptives, which was done through a grant from Planned Parenthood. In Australia, Jean Lee was the last woman to be hanged in Australia after being convicted of murder. Some notable people born in 1951 were Sting, Phil Collins, and Jane Seymour. So, David's parents were John and Margaret Burney. David was the oldest of five children. The family lived in a suburb called Wattle Grove, which is mostly rural, with growing fruit being its major industry, but they also have poultry farms, horses, horticulture nurseries, hobby farms, cattle breeders, and so on. There's a story that when David's parents asked their local priest to conduct their wedding, the priest was hesitant, telling them that he felt their union could not be a good one. You see, his father was apparently a very, very small man, physically and socially disabled and was described as very unattractive not that that would matter in love but john stuttered so badly people had a hard time having conversations with him margaret's personality was very coarse and i guess you would say crass She used profanity back in a time when young ladies did not do that, and her behavior was even worse. She chain-smoked, she was an alcoholic, she was very deviant. She was known to offer sexual favors in trade with taxi drivers and so on. Now, when David was born, sources say she was completely indifferent toward him. 
Witnesses described scenarios where she would be on the city bus with David in her lap. He would be very dirty, his diaper completely full of human waste. She apparently would pawn him off on other people to hold so that she could smoke and read her comics. It is said that she had the mental age of about a 14-year-old. Now, from the time David was three years old, people could tell that he was, well, different. People that went to school with him all stated that his family's home was disgustingly filthy. The family did not eat dinner together, which was the norm back then. Not that either of the parents really cooked for or bothered themselves with the care of their own children. They were left to fend for themselves. There was definitely a stigma that followed the Bernie family, no doubt. His mother left the refrigerator door open so that the dogs and the children could help themselves whenever they were hungry, which meant there wasn't always enough food to go around. As they grew, they became quite good at lying, cheating, and stealing. And then, unfortunately, David also witnessed his mother having sex for money. And not only that, but it has been said that David and one of his brothers, and possibly other siblings, had incestual relations together, and there were other rumors that they possibly learned the behavior from what was being done to them by possibly one of their parents. So in the early 1960s, David's parents moved the family to another area just outside of Perth. Through friends, 12-year-old David met an also 12-year-old Catherine, and it didn't take long for the two to become inseparable. She professed her undying love to David. Now, Catherine, of course, was Catherine Harrison, who was born on May 23, 1951, and was also from a suburb of Perth. Her parents were Harold and Doreen Harrison. Her mother, Doreen, died when Catherine was just two years old. Doreen had been pregnant and in labor, trying to give birth to a son when she died. The infant did not survive either. Her father didn't feel that he was able to raise Catherine at that specific time, so he sent her to live with her maternal grandparents. And it's said that these grandparents were quite strict, and Catherine was not spared any discipline. But apparently when she was 10 years old, Harold took the grandparents to court for custody, and he won so she went to live with her father. David and Catherine's relationship was all about complete devotion, power, and sex. They began committing petty crimes together and getting into trouble. Her father, Harold, apparently begged his now 14-year-old daughter to dump David, telling her that he was no good. But this only made her run toward David even more, which fed David's narcissism. 
So at 15 years old, David dropped out of school and worked as an assistant jockey at a local horse racing track. Now people that worked with him there stated that he never smiled and he mistreated the horses, kicking them and jerking their leads. Another interesting story is that he was also seen riding past the stables on his bicycle wearing nothing but a long black coat. He would then just like open his coat wide and expose himself to everyone. And then one night he broke into an elderly woman's house. This elderly woman, by the way, fed all of the apprentices at this stable and he broke into her house wearing nothing but pantyhose over his head and he beat and raped her. So as you can imagine, David was in trouble a lot during his teens, in and out of jail for misdemeanors and felonies. And Catherine was no exception. The more trouble they got into and the more people that knew them disapproved of their relationship, the more bonded they became. But finally, in their late teens, both were in prison. So this was their childhoods. There's a lot to unpack here, so let's start with David. As we are all well aware of, attachment is the deep bond between a parent or primary caregiver and a child. It is very, very important and profoundly affects a child's development as well as their ability to express emotions and also how they build relationships later in life. Attachment issues range from mild to quite serious. It is my belief that David was more on the serious side of that spectrum. These children have difficulty in managing their emotions. You know, they have a lack of trust. They have a lack of self-control and they also need to be in control. Attachment issues can be caused by a child not being responded to or offered comfort during times of distress. You know, if a baby is hungry or left in dirty diapers for hours at a time. It also can be caused from a lack of attention and interaction with the child. Abuse and neglect and parents that are emotionally unavailable due to their own issues with perhaps depression, illness or substance abuse and so on. What grabbed me to point this in that direction is that most of the people interviewed that knew David in his youth commented on the fact that he rarely ever smiled. He avoided eye contact and wasn't really interested in interactive activities with peers. Then we see that there were incestual activities within the, this filthy, disgusting home. We know that David bore witness to his mother's sexual activities. Sexual contact between closely related individuals violates society's most sacred and guarded taboos. And the argument that a younger person may have desired sought out or given consent is irrelevant. Those behaviors are most often groomed, coerced, or generated in response to perceived pressure and or threat 
from a more powerful person. Some say that incest between siblings that are close enough in age isn't considered abuse, that it is mutually desired and is nothing more than experimentation. But in most all cases, it's still one child coercing or pressuring the other into doing it. Either way, it's not good. Then David went on, as a teen, to begin to mistreat and abuse the horses he was charged in caring for. We all know that cruelty shown toward animals is a huge red flag that there is something very wrong in the child's life. Those that abuse animals are much more likely to have been treated violently by their families or have witnessed domestic violence or animal abuse. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. These children are at a higher risk for later aggressive behaviors during adolescence and as adults. It is also a reliable predictor of later pathology as well as delinquent, criminal, and violent behaviors. So, um, so David developed what some call the Madonna Whore Complex. Basically, this is based on an idea where Sigmund Freud said, quote, where such men love, they have no desire, and where they desire, they cannot love, unquote. He thought that it was caused by a split between the affectionate and the sexual currents of male desire. In order to minimize anxiety, men will categorize women into two groups, women he can admire, and women he finds sexually attractive. This is a theory, of course. We're talking about Sigmund Freud. But another theory is that it is stimulated by a child's sense that he has been made to experience intolerable frustration and or narcissistic injury at the hands of his own mother, so that in adulthood, the boy-turned-man seeks to avenge these mistreatments through sadistic attacks on women who are stand-ins for the mother. Aha, see, I think most of us can think of quite a few serial killers who suffered with this. Now, looking at Catherine, we know her mother died during childbirth when she was just a toddler herself. Very young children who experience the loss of a parent are still, of course, negatively impacted, though she really most likely had no memory of her mother's death. I didn't find out how old she was when her father sent her to live with her mother's parents, but it was said that at 10 years old, her father felt he was able to take care of her and he won custody back. We know her grandparents were quite strict, but I didn't find any specific sources saying she was abused or neglected or that either one of the grandparents were derelict in their duty as a caregiver 
for the young Catherine. Once her father got her back, we don't hear any issues whatsoever for two years before she met David when they were both 12. By 14, the couple were inseparable. My opinion is that she was easily talked into helping him with his deviant behavior because a person with a severe personality disorder would be quite charming and manipulative, usually being able to talk people into seeing their side of things and making them feel comfortable about decisions and so on. I also think, my opinion of course, that she didn't have a mother, she probably overly mothered David, David himself having a mother who didn't really bother herself with motherly type duties and because he was so receptive to her mothering and she herself loved the fact that he loved being mothered that that kind of helped build their intense relationship but that's my opinion of course so let's continue by the time Catherine was 19 years old she had finally been able to break the spell as it were her parole officer got her a great job being a live-in housekeeper for a respected family. Now she adored this family and they loved her as well. She even fell in love with and married one of their sons, a young man named Donald, though he was 10 years older than her. They immediately began starting a family. Their first child was a son, Donnie, and Catherine was ecstatic. She absolutely loved being a mother. One day, she had some visitors at the house, and as the visitors were leaving, she set her six-month-old baby down to wave the family off, only they backed up and ran the baby over, killing him. She was, of course, grief-stricken, but the couple went on to have six more children and life was good. After the last child was born, she went to have a hysterectomy at a local hospital. When David was released from prison, not too long after Catherine, he too went on with his life, getting married and having a daughter. He had told old acquaintances that he had grown and matured while in prison and intended to live a good and quiet life. People were happy for him. They really hoped so. But, of course, David couldn't live up to that and quickly went back to his old ways, again being in and out of jail, usually for breaking and entering. Then in 1984, when both were 33 years old, life would bring the two once young lovers back together. David managed to track Catherine down to the hospital where she was recovering from her surgery and was sitting at her bedside, holding her hand when her husband Donald came to see her. Now, once she recouped, recovered, and was able to go back to work, Donald drove her to her job and dropped her off, saying, you know, I'll be back to pick you up after your shift, and then he left. Her husband and children would not see her again. So blinded by her devotion to David that she abandoned her own children and husband. She even legally changed her last name to Bernie, though she never technically divorced her husband, 
or ever legally married David. They found and moved into a quaint little house in southern Perth and settled in. And while David and Catherine had quite the, I would say, healthy sex life, he was a sexual deviant and addict who was also addicted to sadistic porn. He needed more and more, so they began to explore their darkest, most disturbing sexual fantasies. Now at this point, David's younger brother, Jamie, went to live with them and on his 21st birthday, David basically gave Catherine over to Jamie to have relations with all night while David watched and then David eventually joined in. So in late 1985, David began stalking what he thought might be his first victim. She was a secretary for a real estate agency. Audrey, the secretary, was looking out the window and noticed a man sitting outside watching her. She stated that she became a little uncomfortable by the third day of him sitting and watching her from outside. He finally decided to go into the office where he struck up a conversation with her and tried to convince her to leave with him. Thankfully, she refused. She said he was saying anything and everything to try to get her to leave with him and he returned to the office every day for a few days after that until she got her husband to come to the office with her. Her husband confronted David and David split. He ran out the door and across the lot with the husband in hot pursuit after him. The next year in October, David, who had been working at an auto junkyard, was approached by 22-year-old Mary Nielsen, who was looking to buy some tires. He convinced her to come to his house because, you know, he had tires there that he would sell her at a greatly reduced price. And she agreed. As soon as she entered the house, David grabbed her and held her at knife point, then gagged her and chained her to a bed. He then repeatedly and violently raped her while Catherine sat and watched. And she not only watched, but asked him questions about what turned him on the most while committing the act. Once he was done, he and Catherine took Mary to a national park where David raped her yet again and then strangled her with a cord and stabbed her through the heart. They then buried her in a shallow grave. Two weeks later, 15-year-old Susanna Candy was walking along the road when the couple stopped and abducted her, pulling her into their car. They held her at knife point and bound her wrists and ankles. They took her back to the house and forced her to write letters to her family telling them that she had run away to Queensland to be with her friends. Then she was gagged, chained to the bed, and repeatedly raped by David. This time, Catherine climbed into bed with him. David attempted to strangle the teen girl with a cord, but she became hysterical and fought with everything she had. So they forced sleeping pills down her throat. Once she was asleep, Catherine strangled her slowly until she stopped breathing. 
they buried her in another shallow grave in the state forest. Nearly two weeks after that, 31-year-old Nolene Patterson, who had run out of gas, was stranded on the side of the road. The couple stopped and offered assistance. Once Nolene was in the car, she met the same fate as the other girls, only David didn't kill her immediately. He actually kept her for three days. It was obvious he felt something for this woman, and Catherine became wildly jealous, threatening suicide if he didn't kill her. So he forced sleeping pills down Nolene's throat. She overdosed, but he also strangled her. The story is that, while they were burying the body, Catherine got quite a bit of personal satisfaction throwing sand and dirt in Nolene's face. Four days later, on November 5th, 21-year-old Denise Brown was patiently waiting for the bus at a bus stop, but accepted the offer of a ride from David and Catherine Burney. She too was taken at knife point, gagged, chained to the bed, and violently raped. The next day, they took Denise to the Wanneroo Pine Plantation, where in that area he raped her yet again while impaling her with a knife in the neck at the same time. Believing her dead, he began to bury her, only she sat up in the grave. So he grabbed an axe and hit her twice in the head as hard as he could. He then finished burying her. A week later, 17-year-old Kate Moyer accepted a ride from the couple and was again met with a knife in her face. Once she realized what was going to happen to her, she asked as she was chained to the bed if they were going to just rape her or also kill her. She was told, quote, we'll only rape you if you're good, unquote. They made her call her mother to tell her that she had had too much to drink and was staying at a friend's house. She hoped that her mother picked up on that and that she might be in trouble because her mother knew that she didn't drink. Kate was then viciously raped, forced to dance naked in front of the couple and slept while being handcuffed to David. The next morning, David left for work, and Catherine got up to answer the door for an apparent and expected drug dealer. Only, Catherine had forgotten to chain Kate back to the bed. Kate jumped up and climbed out of a window, nearly naked, and ran into a vacuum store where the police were called, and Kate told them everything. Kate accompanied the police to the house where Catherine admitted she recognized the girl but would not answer any questions until her husband returned home from work. Of course, David was immediately picked up from his work, handcuffed, and brought to the residence. So David said that the girl had come to their house willingly, you know, for consensual sex. So both were taken to the police station interrogated and David finally confessed when one officer said quote it's getting dark best we take the shovel and dig them up unquote David responded okay there are four of them 
David pled guilty to four counts of murder, abduction, and rape. He said he pled guilty because it was the least he could do for the victim's families. He and Catherine were both sentenced to four consecutive life sentences. In October 2005, David committed suicide by hanging in prison before he was supposed to go on trial for raping another inmate. Catherine is still in prison and is the head librarian there, supposedly a model prisoner. Her case is marked, quote, never to be released. Interestingly, Catherine's youngest son actually called for her execution and said he had been assaulted just because she happens to be his birth mother. Now, David's daughter never married or had children because she wanted to be 100% sure there would be no more spawns of David Burney. So guys, I do believe when it comes to David that he is that kind of mix of nature and nurture. I believe his mother had some underlying mental issues and she didn't bond with or care for her children in the appropriate way a mother should. David could have inherited this propensity for not having empathy and his childhood environment and experiences sealed the deal on his fate. Seems fairly open and shut, but what about Catherine? Her circumstances in her youth were not ideal, certainly, but again, we find no evidence of abuse or neglect suffered by her from anyone, and her father seemed to want to parent her and steer her on a good path when he got his custody back. But it does show the immense power a narcissist or psychopath has and can hold over another individual. But what do you think? Leave me a comment on Instagram at serial underscore killing or YouTube under the same name as this podcast. Consider sponsoring the podcast so that perhaps in the very near future, I will be able to create more content for you guys more often. And as always, guys, thank you so much for listening. I appreciate every single one of you because I know you could be listening to anyone else and yet you still choose to listen to me and I just find that fascinating. Thank you so much and have a great day.